Hello, my name is Jim. This is my podcast, The Bloody Vegans. You're very welcome to it. Each week, I'll be travelling ever deeper into the world of veganism, discovering along the way a multitude of viewpoints from the political and ethical to the practical. I'll be doing this through a series of conversations, each aiming to further illuminate my understanding and hopefully yours of all things vegan. And this week is no different. This week I chatted with Georgie Purcell, who's the Animal Justice Party candidate for the upcoming state elections over in Northern Victoria in Australia. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the Animal Justice Party, established in 2009, uh, was set up in response to the growing public concern over abuse, harm and mistreatment of non-human animals across Australia and their intent is to ultimately give those animals a voice politically uh, in the Australian system and they've been successful. In fact, Georgie is currently the chief of staff for their first uh, elected official, their first elected MP um, over in Victoria. So they are making great ground. They literally do have a seat at the table um, and um, they aim to have more and that is what Georgie is doing in the upcoming state elections. She's going to tell us all about that as well as her work in what essentially has become a micro-sanctuary that she set up. She has uh, 17 sheep living alongside her, a donkey, three horses, um, four ex-puppy farm dogs and four cats. So she has really set up a bit of a, a sanctuary uh, alongside her work with Animal Justice. Justice Party. She's truly, truly incredible, uh, a fantastic activist. So without further ado, here is a conversation between me and Georgie Purcell from the Animal Justice Party. Yeah, so it's quite a long journey, actually. Um, when I was four I'm I've just turned 30 now so quite some time ago I would have been about 1996 I lived in a really small farming town um and I was on living on a highway I just learned to ride my bike and I just watched the movie Babe which I'm sure many people would be familiar with and this truck went past me and I noticed that it was full of pigs and I said to my parents where are they going and they were really honest with me. And I think it was that first, like, realisation of what meat was. And kids just get that stuff, I think. Like, I was so confronted by it and so upset by it that I just said to my parents, I don't want to do that anymore. And they were great about it and they said no worries. So I went vegetarian as quite a young child, which was interesting and challenging uh, living in the area that I did. And then many, many years later, when I was at university about 19, um, 11 years ago, I started to get involved in activism and sort of made some friends through that. And uh, with one friend in particular, we watched Earthlings and we just started getting involved in more animal activism and we had that moment together that we realised we were still contributing to cruelty to animals by being vegetarian and it wasn't enough. So from that moment... I decided to go vegan and haven't looked back since. So almost the activism came before the actual, if you like, the labelling. Yeah, yeah, it did. So I remember going to some protests at a local animal shelter that had really high kill rates for their cats and dogs when I still wasn't vegan and then stuff started coming out about live export over in Australia, Australian animals being live exported to countries overseas in this really graphic and awful voyage and slaughter footage. 
and I was getting involved in activism around that, but I still wasn't vegan. So yeah, it was one of the, it was a little bit odd that because mm. normally the veganism comes and then the activism comes, but I sort of did it, mm. you know, similar time, but the activism came first. Mm. Did, did people that you were kind of alongside, you were kind of activists alongside you, did they question? your kind of involvement and as a, as a vegetarian as uh, over, over being vegan? I think so because it was this really interesting time in activism here uh, around Melbourne where there'd been a few, we were, we're such a big community here in Melbourne now. Like when I first went vegan and got involved in activism, you knew everyone, you knew everyone's names were a small group, always the same people at every protest. And now it's like we've just exploded I'll go along to an event and I don't know who half the people are, which is awesome. But we've just gone through a period, I think, of people are a little bit paranoid about, paranoid about like plants and, you know, these new people coming in. And then I think they quickly realised that I was just naive and I, I hadn't worked it out yet. Right. So it came very quickly after that. <laughs> how did, do you remember how they kind of like approached you? Was, it, was, was there kind of, it sounds like there was, but was there kind of a bit of, was there kindness to it? Or was there almost a bit of criticism? I think kindness and also just assumption that I was because you sort of aren't involved in animal activism if you're not vegan. And then I realised that I should be and it, you know, I just, I, you know, watched earthlings and um, through those conversations I I went vegan. But, yeah, people were always very kind about it. The, The Melbourne and Victorian activism scene is in general a very good you know welcoming kind place yeah. that's very supportive of each other so um lot, when I did make that decision everyone was very supportive and helpful and it obviously it wasn't hard back then um but a lot's changed in 11 years I think it's much easier to go vegan now yeah yeah how how have the kind of the attitudes towards veganism from the sort of wider population at least from from your standpoint how have they changed over the course of your personal involvement with activism and veganism? I find it incredible to see the shift and the change. I remember when I first went vegan and I was quite, as I think a lot of people go through when they first go vegan, you're really upset and confronted by all these things you didn't know about and very passionate about creating change and I was very, very outspoken about it. And I just remember a lot of people not liking that and being confronted by it. And now so many of the people who disagreed with me or weren't sort of understanding of it have gone vegan themselves and we're seeing this massive, you know, change in um, in just in the food culture here in Melbourne and Victoria. We have all kinds of activism, as I'm sure you do too, and just some people bringing about really positive change. You know, we've got the people doing the education work and we've got – people doing the sort of um, advocacy work to, you know, food brands and to um, clothes retailers and um, all of those things. And then we've got sort of the more um, out there disruption work and all of it's having such a big impact here. I just think there's been a real social shift uh, in the way that veganism's viewed and it's normal to be vegan now when you tell someone you're vegan at, you know, work or an event, it's, it's so much different to what it was even when I did it, which, you know, wasn't all that long ago, but just a huge shift. Like it's, it's cool now, which is, which is really cool to see. Hmm. From your perspective, is that quite a, 
a sort of a Melbourne centric view. Do you, do you, do you find that you know when you when you perhaps travel or you have experiences from around different areas around the country that that views towards veganism kind of shift? Uh, is is do you know or is that kind of experience of Melbourne quite quite repeatable if you like across the country? I think it's quite repeatable. Um, obviously, we've had a challenging couple of years here in Melbourne, as I know you will have as well with, you know, not being able to travel. But mm. in the times, you know, since um, we've been in restrictions and before that, I noticed big changes all over Australia. And I think the biggest, um, the eye, most eye-opening thing for me is I lived very um, close to the city for some time and, you know, basically in Melbourne. But a few years ago, uh, mm. I moved out to the country about five, six years ago, um, about an hour out of Melbourne because I wanted to live on some land and have some rescue animals. And I remember coming out here and thinking, oh, I don't know what it's going to be like in terms of, you know, veganism and, um, you know, what are my neighbours going to think of me and all this stuff. And even out here in the country, yeah. um, you know, I live in a town that um, – once upon a time was very sort of, you know, farming centric and a lot of animal agriculture. And in, in the town that I live in itself, it, it still has a slaughterhouse, but right. the, there's such a big change in culture here um, in terms of veganism, the way that it's viewed as well. You know, there's not a place in town that, you know, you can't go to eat and, you know, you saw, you see new vegan products popping up every day and you meet people all over town that have gone vegan. And even on my street, um, they're all very supportive and, you know, cool about what I do, which mm. is great. Like, I just think people understand it now. Yeah, absolutely. That's what, it's yeah. great to hear. I'm, I'm fascinated by, cause you, you've got quite, it would be good to sort of run through a little bit about this, but you've got almost a bit of a sanctuary going on. You've got <laughs> quite a, a number of, um, a number of animals with you that have been rescued in bits and pieces. So it'd be good to understand a little bit about folks' reaction to that, that you almost sort of building this, this almost this sanctuary like on their doorstep and being this, <laughs> this outspoken vegan and so on. Yeah, it's, um, I think people were a little bit confused at first and now, you know, being accepted by the community. I've got some sheep farmers on my street and I'll never forget the day that they noticed that I had newborn lambs. So I started taking in newborn lambs that had been um, orphaned when the um, – we've got a really big problem here, particularly around Melbourne where it's very, very cold in winter – um, millions, literally millions of newborn lambs will die every winter from exposure because it gets so cold and so windy and so wet. And um, But we have a really good crew around the state of people that will try and rescue these lambs before it's too late. And um, it's a real, quite a big job to take them on and care for them because in the early days they need bottles sort of every two hours or so. And I started taking on these newborn lambs and I had them running around in the front yard when it was a nice day. They were mostly inside at the start. But when my neighbour saw that I had newborn lambs, he came over um, with a basically like a pair of pliers and said, I noticed that your lambs have tails. Do you want me to cut them off for you? And I was like, oh, no, that's fine. Um, I'm going to leave their tails on. And I remember him thinking I was, there must be something wrong with me because, you know, he's a sheep farmer and thought he was trying to help me out and lambs can't have tails. And then 
years have gone by and these are little mm. lambs, like these massive sheep now with their tails. And he actually said to me um, one day, I've, I realised through you that sheep can actually keep their tails. And so, you know, this sort of there's been this acceptance of um, – of you know mm. me and the and the work that I'm doing, even among the people you never would expect it to come from, and I guess um, I've been able to give them new ways and new lines of thinking. But yeah, it, since that time, I've brought in um, I've got 16 sheep um, that were all lambs, and then I've got three horses. I've got a donkey that I never planned to get, and he's actually 42 years old. Um, so I rescued him two years ago and then I've got four cats, four rescue cats and four rescue dogs. So it's a bit of a mini sanctuary. How on earth do you have time to support all those animals and be as politically engaged as you are? I just I don't, I don't understand. Someone asked me this very same question yesterday and I, I don't actually know, but it sounds like such a, I guess, like a, a corny response. But I think just when it's the issue that you care about the most, you make the sacrifices to make it happen, right? Like I know that my purpose, there's a lot of issues I care about, but I know that my purpose is to try and create a kind of world for animals and um, the reason I wanted to, you know, start the micro sanctuary is because I didn't want to just help the individual animals, which is very important, but I feel really passionately that animals are their very own best advocates and by having them here and being able to tell their stories, you know, online and through social media and have my friends and family out to meet them, um, they tell their own stories. And mm. we see so much graphic footage and awful things going on to animals, but I believe that for a lot of people sometimes the most effective way to shift people's mindsets is to actually see animals living the lives that they should. Um, so, mm. you know, I just see the balance of, you know, my wants to have these animals in my care and to advocate that way plus my want to advocate for them politically, I just have to make it work because I think it's really important. It'd be good to understand a little bit about where the the, the passion, the interest, the involvement in politics all yeah. began for you. Yeah. Um, I think, again at a really young age, I, um, not so much when it came to animals, but I became very, uh, interested in politics. I grew up in a household where we spoke about politics, which I think a lot of families don't, but my family always did. So I became sort of quite interested in politics and our political systems. And I quickly realized that they could be used as a tool for positive change. And, um, all forms of activism are very, very important, but they sort of all feed up to this top level, um, which is often the political level. And um, I guess it was a bit of a gap in terms of activists and advocacy at that political level. And I became really interested in wanting to have a go at that after spending some time sort of mm. doing a lot more action on the front. Uh, my animal activism in the beginning was very much on the front line, like direct action and rescues and investigations and things like that. And I decided I wanted to have a go at seeing what change I could create politically because I um, I really cared about it and um, I just finished a law degree, I'm admitted as a lawyer and it was sort of in my mind maybe I could use my skills in that area um, and transfer it that way and 
Um, so became president of a anti-puppy farming organisation over here called Oscar's Law and we were campaigning to um, end puppy farming across Australia. But because it's a state issue, we had to try and get legislation state by state. So we thought we'll start in Victoria where we live and um, campaign for a number of years, long before I became president, the campaign was running and um, eventually we got the commitment um, during during an election, one of the parties committed to banning puppy farms if they won the election and the sale of puppies in pet shops. And, um, and they did win the election and then we got to work with them on um, implementing legislation. And I'll never forget it because it's that it's one of those moments in activism you feel like you can be really pushing and advocating on an issue and it doesn't really change, like the social awareness changes, but the cruelty goes on. But... You know, one day puppy uh, puppies were being sold in pet shops in Melbourne and then, you know, another day this bill passed the parliament and they weren't allowed to do it anymore. And it felt like that really sort of um, you could really feel the change, like um, yeah. there was an end of the campaign, which is something that's very exciting to me. Um, so I was, I was working in that space and then um, also a member of the Animal Justice Party, which is our political party here in Australia where we have um, a number of members of members of parliament now, which is cool. And um, another election rolled around and we, we got a member of parliament elected and I ended up working for him and I've been doing that for the past four years. So very, very lucky that I get animal advocacy and um, campaigning is my actual paid career now, which is a bit of a dream after doing it as a volunteer for so long. It'd be good for folks to understand, particularly those outside of Australia who perhaps haven't come across the Animal Justice Party, etc., and the work that you do, to just to understand a little bit about that party, how it fits into the wider political system. Uh, mm-hmm. It'd be good to understand sort of, you know, it, its place in that, that sort of food chain. Yeah, of course. So here in Australia, we have three levels of government. We've got like local government, which is our councils, um, and then we've got state government, and then we've got federal government. So um, state governments, obviously, the different states around Australia and federal governments for the whole country. Um, And basically uh, the way that our um, democratic system works here is it's quite different to yours. Um, It allows us to – we actually have the opportunity to be elected at any level, which is really, really cool. And um, the Animal Justice Party was formed – over 10 years ago now, and um, our goal was to get politicians into Parliament to advocate for animals. We have um, a number of great political parties um, that are socially progressive here in Australia that have animal welfare policies, Um, but there was no political party that was solely dedicated to ending cruelty to animals. So while um, all of these political parties were getting members of parliament elected who cared about animals, they also obviously had a range of other issues they had to advocate on, which are very, very important, but it often meant that animals were falling by the wayside and um, there was a gap that needed to be filled. So um, we have had good success. We don't have a federal member of parliament yet, um, but we will one day. Um, But we do have a number of state MPs. So we've got two um, members of parliament elected in New South Wales and then we've got one here in Victoria, which is who I work for. And we've also got a number of councillors around the country too. So um, 
in Australia, the um, I guess the issues that relate to animals are often broken down to different levels as well, like government are too. So um, live export, which is obviously a big, big issue here in Australia and something we want to ban, that's a federal issue. Um, but something like duck shooting or kangaroo shooting or um, even wombat shooting, which we were able to ban, is a state issue. Um, so, And then council sort of can relate to things like companion animals and um, cats and dogs and, you know, think, and animal shelters. So um, we do all advocacy in all those spaces, but um, my focus for the past four years has been largely on that state level of bringing about change for animals here in Victoria. So the, the aim, I suppose, ultimately, to, if you can get in at every level, you can influence every decision. That's the, the, the principle, yeah? Absolutely, yeah, and we're very, very lucky here in Victoria where um, we have two houses of parliament, the Legislative Assembly and the Legislative Council. Um, the Assembly is the lower house where legislation starts and the Council is the upper house where legislation goes as like a house of review. And um, the government, mm. uh, the Labor Party, have a majority in the lower house so they can pass all of their legislation in the lower house, no problem, but they don't have a majority in the upper house, which is where we have a seat. So it gives us, um, I guess, a decent amount. While we only have one member of parliament, we have a lot of power because the government has to work with us in order to get through their legislative agenda. So if they want to pass a bill on something um, and there's something that we don't like that they're doing to animals, it opens up the door to have that conversation. And um, we have a really positive and proactive working relationship with the government, which is why we've been able to get so much done because they rely on us and we rely on them. So even if you only have one member of parliament advocating for animals, you can actually find yourself in a very, very powerful position, which has been amazing for the change we can bring about. 100%. Yeah, it sounds like a like you say you can make an impact with a relatively low low number i'm fascinated by like how the general public see you as a party and and where they kind of um where they kind of interact with you the most i mean now i I asked this question because i I was chatting to somebody who ran a um uh, she ran an animal sanctuary in uh vietnam yeah and she was talking about the the challenges that she faces being an animal sanctuary in Vietnam that doesn't focus on the dog meat trade. And ultimately she was talking about how a lot of the sanctuaries around her will only talk about the dog meat trade because they know that Western audiences care about those issues, quote unquote, but don't don't care about animals that have, you know, been rejected from the animal agriculture industry or been rescued from that industry or, or, or that kind of thing. I'm fascinated by how the general public over in Australia and Victoria specifically have have related to the Animal Justice Party and what kind of issues have been the most successful for you from a campaigning point of view. Yeah, it's a really good question because that has changed significantly over the years it took us quite some time to actually get some members of parliament elected because I think people didn't take us seriously and um, they saw us as this, you know, vegan fringe, you know, radical animal activist party and um, didn't realise that we actually are capable of making, like, ethically sound decisions because obviously when you get elected to the parliament, 
even if your focus is animals, which ours is, you, you're obligated to vote on a bunch of other issues. And through doing that, um, we've been able to establish ourselves as really strong allies to other communities that have relied on us to make their lives better as well. So um, we played a big role here in Victoria as a key vote to banning um, conversion therapy for it was legal up until recently for um you know, churches or schools to undertake conversion therapy to try and change um, LGBTQI people. Um, so we played a big role in banning that and um, birth certificate reform to allow trans and gender diverse people to change their birth certificates to reflect who they truly are. Um, and then also a lot of workers' rights issues. So, we, you know, we played a key role in making wage theft a crime in Victoria. Um, so through doing that work while maintaining our priority of advocating for animals, I think we've become a lot more, I guess, palatable and normal to members of the public, even if they're not vegan. Um, they can see that, you know, we're effective, um, we're passionate and we can get things done and, um, we're very reasonable, um, a non-negotiable farce as a party as, you know, as um, our members of parliament, they're required to be vegan. But um, we we uh, advocate on a range of issues outside of, you know, not just the, the farming, sector or farming sector. So um, the general public does tend to agree on a lot of the things that we ask for, like um, – they relate to issues of cruelty to wildlife, protecting koalas, protecting kangaroos. We've got an awful program here in Victoria that allows kangaroos to be shot in droves for pet meat and the joeys to be bludgeoned over um, tow bars of cars um, as a uh, humane, you know, method of dis um, dispatchment. So the average person doesn't agree with that, whether they're vegan or not. So I think people have come around to the work that we're doing and um, can see that we are a valuable contribution to the political system here. Um, but in saying that, you did ask what the most popular issues are that we um, campaign on um, and it, it probably still would be uh, relating to companion animals like dogs and cats. Mm. Um, but the beauty of doing that work is when we do advocate on a popular issue, I think a recent example is um, – we've just put forward a proposal to implement universal health care for uh, pets here in Victoria, which would mean we have a Medicare system, which is, you know, like bulk billing, universal health care for humans. We're asking for the same for companion animals. And it was very, very popular. It got a lot of media, got a lot of attention. But by doing that work, we bring attention to the party and awareness to the party and people, um, you know, come to us that way by caring about cats and dogs, but then they get to learn about a lot of other issues. And, you know, we have members join the party who aren't vegan when they join, um, but eventually get there through sort of learning more and more about the work that we're doing. So it can sometimes be disappointing that people do care about cats and dogs more, but I also think it's a really important and, you know, a strategic way to bring people in to learn about the plight of farmed animals too. I was going to ask that, but I, I guess you, you've you've kind of answered it with that. But I, I, it's interesting because you, like you say, you have to have an influence, you have to have a say on su a, such a range of issues that sort of on the surface, um, although obviously we can talk about you know, in, intersectional oppressions and so on. But you know, if we're talking about it as as it as it stands, what's what's written on the the docket, if you like, it, that's a different issue, so on and so forth. 
Is, is it almost like a bit of a Trojan horse, do you think? Like they, they see you being reasonable, they agree with you on 80, 90% of the issues and then, well, do you know what? Maybe there's something to it. It's, and I appreciate that's probably anecdotal. I don't, don't expect you to necessarily have a stat that X amount of people have been uh, uh, been converted to our way of thinking. But is, is that, anecdotally, do you see that quite a lot or is that quite a fringe case? No, I think that's right. I actually do think it's a bit of a Trojan horse. Like I think... Um, even members of parliament who, um, you know, are very strongly aligned to farmers and, you know, um, animal agribusiness, I think they sort of get to know us and come around and start to see our perspective. And um, every now and then we will do something that is, you know, quite bolshy and, um, and I guess, you know, not in, maybe uh, the average member of the public wouldn't be as supportive of it as, you know, universal health care for animals. Um, but I think that, um, yeah, for the most part, people actually, you know, can relate to the things that we're doing and um, understand the importance behind it. So, um, and we always do try and link it back to something, you know, positive. So we're, um, at the moment, we're obviously, um many people know about the climate emergency, um, trying to do some work to stop that. And um, and one of the things that we've done is called for the parliament to be made meat-free, which upset a lot of people. Um, but when we actually talked about the reasons why it was important, um, a lot of people came around and actually said, well, I can't really argue with that. Like I didn't realise the impact animal agriculture was having um, on, the, on the climate. So... Yeah, I think that um, I, I think that broadly um, the the view of the party and the perception of the party and who we are um, has massive massively changed over the past few years through being able to do that work um, and you know being um, having the opportunity and the privilege to sort of put ourselves in that world which animals were never focused in on before we were there. You mentioned climate change, and it was definitely something I wanted to speak to you about because, you know, we're all, I think, experiencing the effects of climate change much more directly in the sort of, um, in, in the, the Western world, quote unquote, if you like, and um, in the sort of um, the global north and so on and so forth. There's, we're experiencing that here, 41 degrees temperatures in the yeah. UK in the summer is completely unheard of. Yeah. Um, and, you know, is, is, and if it's not 41, it's consistent in, in, in the 30s for the last week or two, which is, again, just unheard of as, a, you know, growing up in the 80s, 90s, I, I didn't experience that. Yeah. Um, and, and so, uh, obviously, we, we see on the news, um, and it was kind of overshadowed, I think, by COVID, but I think back to the January of, what was it, 2020, when the, the forest fires in Australia were you know, absolutely devastating um, to to all kinds of all kinds of life, whether animals, non-human animals, um, or, or human animals, and um, and so I, I'm interested as to whether that has been another gateway for you from a general population point of view, whether people are starting to see some of the issues you're talking about as a potential solution in a world where not many uh, politicians are seemingly presenting any credible solution to this kind of problem. Yeah, absolutely. That is the case that's happening. Um, like 41 degree days are actually quite common here in Australia, but as you say, we're experiencing the climate emergency here in other ways. Um, 
we've, we're having awful floods at the moment in um, New South Wales and surrounding areas. And then here in Victoria, yeah, those few years ago, we had those horrific bushfires that caused the death of millions, millions and millions of animals. And um, those confronting scenes and those confronting imageries of, you know, not just animals losing their lives, but people under very severe and significant threat. And something that always happened in those um, disasters in um, our state and our country was you knew they were happening, um, but unless you're sort of there or nearby, you weren't experiencing the impact of them. Um, And with those 2020 bushfires, that sort of changed everything because they were so big and so horrific that um, the whole state was – covered in smoke um I live nowhere near those bushfires hours and hours away and it was so smoky in my house that I had to wear a mask like this is pre-covid when wearing a mask wasn't normal um and I had to wear a mask because I'm an asthmatic and I think for the first time people really felt those very real and very confronting um signs of you know what's what's happening and what's to come and Um, Because of that, um, the proposals that we previously put forward, such as, you know, a just transition away from um, animal industries and perhaps utilising some of the crops that we grow to feed to animals to then be killed for us to eat, perhaps they could be used for, you know, to be fed directly to humans instead. Or, you know, why don't we stop clearing land and destroying habitat for native animals to make way for what are essentially introduced animals or farmed animals. Um, I think that was a really defining and significant moment when these disasters started happening that um, the climate emergency is not just something that you, you know, hear about on the news or people talking about it's here and it's real. Um, and I think that was a, um, a big change where people actually started to consider the options and something that did happen, um, you know, since then is we're obviously proposing much bolder, I don't want to say radical cause it's not radical. Um, but you know, bolder solutions, but the government, since then has actually been acknowledging the impact that animal agriculture has on the climate, which was overdue because, you know, we all talk about transport and we talk about fossil fuels, um, but no one ever talks about animal agriculture because it's uncomfortable. And um, But that has started to change since then and we're very hopeful that, you know, we'll start to get some real um, I guess, some real policies and support in place from the government to make the transitions that we need. That It's not just that, you know, we need to eventually make, we will be forced to make them if we don't act on it. We'll have no other choice. And um, that's something that is becoming abundantly clear. So um, we keep chipping away at, you know, trying to bring about those policies um, that are important not just for animals and the environment but the climate. Talking of that, I mean, I was speaking to a, a guest, an author, only yesterday actually for a future episode of the show, um, who is based in New Zealand, and she was talking about the prevalence of the dairy industry in New Zealand and how, despite obviously the impacts of climate change starting to be felt all over the world in their various guises, whether it's floods, devastating bushfires, 41 degree heat, drought, 
whatever whatever you know your version of is around the world there she was talking about them they, they people were experiencing these things in new zealand but there was still a kind of a push and a pull a kind of a battle if you like politically almost for the identity of the country between you know we are a country built on dairy farming in that yeah. particular case is there a kind of an equivalent in australia where there is a sense that animal agriculture forms the, if you like, the backbone of the country. And so you, do you find yourself sometimes up against a, a, a public who are sympathetic in some degree to your cause, searching for answers when it comes to things like climate change, but also kind of, um, if you like, very sympathetic to the idea that the kind of the Australian economy is built on agriculture and that's kind of the true blue kind of, this is what we're about. We, we experience something similar in the UK, so that's why I ask. Yeah, absolutely. Like Australia is definitely viewed to be sort of being built off the back of the sheep. That's very much our thing, which is um, quite wrong um, when you sort of really think about it because it's a very colonising, you know, view to have um, uh, Indigenous Australians had had none of the issues that we're facing because, you know, they weren't clearing land to make way for these um, introduced species, um, farmed animals, and, um, you know, obviously had much more sustainable ways of life until um, the awful things that went on here when, um, when Australia was colonised. But that with that um, came this view about sheep. Like for us it's absolutely sheep and... Um, you know, there is this perception of, um, you know, farmers being, um, you know, they are viewed as the backbone of our country. And um, we often get, we often get, you know, asked, you know, why do you, why do you hate farmers? And um, we don't hate farmers. In fact, um, we love, you know, we rely on farmers. Like, you know, people often seem to forget that, people that grow plants are also farmers and we support them and, you know, think they're great. And um, and we acknowledge that the people that are in these animal farming industries that are frankly unsustainable and um, are causing damage to, you know, our country and our environment, um, we want to help them to, you know, move on from it in a way that is just and a way that is you know fair and a way that is ethical and like I said before if we don't have those difficult conversations soon um they're going to be decisions that they're forced to make anyway so um but we do come up against that a lot um it's very I think it's the same in in a lot of in a lot of countries is this sort of one animal that um that the people of that country are are very attached to and see as, you know, the farming animal of that country. And, yeah, for New Zealand it's cows and dairy and for us it's, you know, sheep and, and wool. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating because I do think the, the general public in each of those countries from the, from, at least from the conversations that I gather and certainly from in the, in the UK, I think there is a growing sense of, if not disquiet or discontent, there's a growing sense of, like, unease of, well, I'm hearing kind of two sides of a, a debate and I'm not seeing necessarily a way forward that, that speaks to both. And yeah. it's interesting what you said there. I think uh, I spoke to somebody from the Vegan Society and they're, they're making great strides in helping farmers to transition and also really clear about 
farming is not the enemy. Yeah. Um, we, we need farmers. We just need them to farm different things. Yeah. Um, as much for our kind of, you know, independence, if you talk about land mass for the amount of um, calories you're getting from a, a plant-based diet versus an animal-based diet, et cetera, is it's kind of there's, there's arguments left and right. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's kind of, I think, uh, as you were talking there, I kind of feel reassured in a way that there's a, there's almost a, there is a global, a global movement and a synergy between a lot of countries and a lot of our, our debating points, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. What's the, what's the animal for you that everybody's very attached to? <laughs> the UK is kind of quite split, actually. I think, I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of dairy. Yeah. Uh, so I think the cow is often the kind of the, the poster animal, if yeah. you like, for for British farming. If you if you look at those kind of those uh, uh, the the images that you see on the side of trucks, which are never quite true, of uh, lush pastures, there's usually a cow on there. Yeah. I think, um, but I think the British public are quite attached to to pork as well. Yeah. Like they're quite attached to pigs. Uh, well, they're not attached to pigs. They're attached to products. Uh, that are that are taken from from animals and and taken from pigs. Um, so you don't see pigs on the side of trucks, but you do see a lot of people talking about sausages and bacon things yeah. like that. I think so. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I'd say it's probably we have a similarity, I think, to New Zealand in that regard. I think it's probably if you're talking about the poster animal, it's probably the cow. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's concerning, but yeah, I think I think perceptions changing, which is always nice. Yeah, yeah. So you're you're running for. Let me get this right. Uh, you're going to be the candidate, or you are the candidate for Northern Victoria in the upcoming state election. Yeah, that's right. right. So after spending the last four years working in Parliament for um, our existing member of Parliament, we sort of realised, as I spoke about earlier, the power that comes with having one member of Parliament, and if we can get more that's obviously going to be hugely amplified. So um, I'm running in my region um, and we hope to get um, multiple members of parliament at this election. So it's three months away tomorrow and um, in the next few months I'll sort of embark on a pretty intense election campaign. Um, And by December we'll know um, the outcome. But, yeah, I I made the decision to run because I just – I've, I've really felt the impacts of, you know, what we can get done by having these political representatives for animals. And it's a sort of very scary and daunting decision to make, but I think it's, you know, an important one because we need those people in there like, speaking up for animals who obviously can't speak for themselves. And we have a bunch of other awesome candidates too. So hopefully between the lot of us, we'll be able to get a few more members of parliament doing uh, great work and bringing about that change. And what does, you know, in, in sort of real terms, practical terms, what does what does a few more members of parliament give you from a point of view of like your potential influence and, and, and power? Yeah, so with um, multiple members of parliament, it obviously depends on the outcome of the election and the results and the numbers in the various houses of parliament. But with multiple members of parliament, we can att- essentially hold, I guess, a a somewhat of a balance of power in in the house where we can get um, elected. So 
like I said to you before, the government relies on us heavily to be able to pass any of their legislation. Um, if we have more members of parliament, they'll rely on us even more to sort of get those votes and to get their bills and their legislative agenda across the line. And it gives us a lot more bargaining power um, when talking with the government about the things that we want them to do um, for animals. Um, but it also just massively increases our profile, right? So um, the more people that learn about the Animal Justice Party, the better. It brings them along and into the fold of animal issues and sort of learning more about um, many of the awful things that go on um, in our state that often people just don't know about. And um, it all contributes towards this, you know, broader movement for change at the different levels of activism that are going on. So, um, yeah, we we are very hopeful that we can get, um, you know, we've got one, we ideally want two or three, and it is very, very achievable for us, so it's very exciting. Awesome. Georgie, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you so thank much, you so much. For, your, for your time. I really appreciate it. You must be super busy running your micro-sanctuary running for election, all, all these kind of amazing things. Where would folks go about finding out a little bit about a uh, bit more about you, the upcoming campaign, maybe the Animal Justice Party? It'd be good to direct them to the right places. Yeah, of course. So you can find me, I'm mostly active on Instagram uh, at georgie.purcell.ajp. And then also if you want to find out more about the Animal Justice Party, it's just animaljusticeparty.org. And if you want to know specifically about the state that I'm working in, you just put a vic.animaljusticeparty.org at the start. Um, and uh, all of our candidate pages and all of our information is on Facebook as well. So we are not hard to find and always happy to have a chat to anyone who wants to know more about the work that we're doing. Awesome. We'll pop links in the show notes, but best of luck. Uh, for the upcoming election and for the Animal Justice Party. I think you're doing some incredible work. It's, it's amazing to hear like real life changes that are being made over there. So uh, thank you so much for all you do and thank you for your time. Thanks for having me on. It was great. <laughs>